Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, we're here now, gathered together, Lord, with our hearts quieted, ready to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. So, Lord, as we sit and we open up your word, we are prepared to hear from you. Lord, speak to us this morning. Use this time. Lord, we hand everything over to you this morning, all of this. Lord, use me in whatever way you'd like to use me this morning. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, last week at the end of, uh, our, you know, while we were in uh, chapter 18, one of the things that God was speaking to the um, Israelites, remember, they're on the verge of going into the promised land. I see I already started with this. Sorry. <laughs> one of the things that he warns them against is this idea of not to learn to follow after the ways of the pagans that they're going to encounter on this land. See, God isn't going to clear out the land and then send them in. He's going to actually use them to help him dispossess the land. And as they go in, he is saying, there's going to be a lot of pagan worship. Don't, don't worship that. He's going to say, don't, don't worship me in the way that they worship. But then he said last week, don't learn to follow after these pagan things that they have, these practices. And he goes and just ticks a bunch of them off like psychics and mediums. We were joking on Friday, at Thursday night at my small group, and we're like, what, what if you're a medium but you're a big person? Are you a medium large or a large medium? Come on, Steve. They're all bad today, Steve. I'm counting on you. And one of the, we talked about a couple of reasons why God hates these practices. One of the reasons is quite clearly they're replacing God. They're saying rather than to trust you, to reach out to you, to speak to you, we're going to seek out other ways of learning about the afterlife looking into the future, knowing the unknowable things. And God says, that's my place. God says, if you want to know about the afterlife, talk to me. Look in my word. If you want to know about someone who's been dead and now is able to speak to you, get on your knees and pray to Jesus because he's the one that died and rose again. He's the one that is ready to talk to you. God says, if you want to know what the future holds, you can't know. But you can know the one who holds the future. Amen? God says, do not replace me with these pagan ways that they use to try to know the future, to try to speak to the ones in the afterlife, to try and know things that only I know, that I share with you when I want to share them with you. Don't replace me with those things. But secondly, God says, those ways will draw you away from me. Remember what we said last week that sometimes psychics are just scam artists, right? Mediums and psychics, they tell you what they think you want to hear and they draw you away and they're just, they're just scammers. But some of them are talking to somebody. 
And there is a spiritual realm going on around us that we discussed last week that I showed you some biblical evidence for a spiritual realm all around us that we can't see necessarily, but is there that there are some people who are practicing these pagan rituals who are able to connect to spirits that are not from God. In fact, were created by God, but rejected him and, and are now what, are part of the army of Satan. And although they don't know the future, they can see what's going on in, their li- in your life. So when you say to me, well, I went and saw a medium and she, she connected to my grandma and I knew it was my grandma because she knew things that um, like she couldn't know because she doesn't know me. But I'll tell you what, there's a demonic army all around you that has watched your whole life and they know everything about your grandma and they will come to you in the form of your grandma and say wonderful, loving things to you because their goal is to pull you away from God. They pull you away from God. And as long as you think you're following the spirit of your dead grandma, you're not looking to God anymore. And Satan is like, That's all, that was my goal. God says, don't do any of that stuff. But God created each and every one of us, didn't he? And he knows all of our hearts. So he knows that we have a desire to know unknown things. He knows that we have a desire to know what's going to happen in the future. He knows that we have a desire to know about the afterlife. And so look at what he says he will do. I will send to you a prophet, he says. A prophet that will know all things. And he's going to come and him you shall hear. You know that verse that word here in Hebrew, it means hearken. And that means listen and obey. God says, I know you have a desire to know things that you don't know, to look into things that you don't know. I'm going to send one to you who will know all of those things. When he comes and when he speaks these things that I tell him to speak, listen to what he says and do the things he says. I know. So from this point forward, they were looking for the prophet. They were looking for that one that God would send who would know all things, who would be able to tell them all things. Uh, You would think so that they could hear and do. Now, there were some characteristics that God lists out here, one of them being he's going to be from among the brethren. He will be from you. He will be a Jew. This prophet who comes will be a Jew. And so from that point on, every Jewish mother was hoping that her son would be the one. In fact, they began to not just think of him as the prophet, but began to think of him as the deliverer, Moshiach, Messiah. That's what they began to look for. Every Jewish mother was hoping, oh, maybe my son will be the prophet. Imagine how excited Elizabeth was. When people started to say, I think your son John is the prophet. I think he's the prophet. Think how disappointed she was when she found out that he turned out to be a Baptist. (laughs) See, they came to John and they said, are you the one? Are you the prophet? And John was like, no, I'm not he. I'm not the one. There's one coming who's greater. But John would say, I am the one, the lone voice in the desert, in the wilderness, calling out, saying, make way, make straight the way of the Lord. There's one coming. As we looked at last week, 
Jesus actually comes on the scene and very early on in his ministry, he goes into the temple and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah, which happened to be, by the way, the reading for that day. It wasn't like Jesus did this. Let me see, where's that prophecy about me again? He opened it up to the reading that day and he read about what the prophet that God had said would do or would come would do. He closed the book, he sat down and he says, in your reading today, this has been fulfilled. He said, it's me. And they're like, and they were amazed. Now, some actually believed him and received him, but many didn't. And I have to ask, like, why? Why didn't someone who, who heard, had been waiting their entire life for the prophet, the Moshiach to come, heard about Jesus, heard about some of the things he was doing, and then said, no, I don't think he's the one. I don't think, I don't think he's the one. Why? I have a couple of thoughts. I don't know where they are. But, uh, <laughs> See, some of them were thinking by this point that the Messiah that was going to come was going to be something other than what Jesus was coming and representing. See, at this time when Jesus came, they were under Roman rule, which meant that they were feeling oppressed. And they were looking for not just the prophet, not just the Messiah, but the one who was gonna come in and deliver them by the sword from Roman rule. And so when Jesus came in, kind of a lowly, like meek figure with wisdom and things to teach and miraculous power, but not with a sword drawn charging towards the Romans, they were like, that's, that's not him. He's not the one. See, they had, they had an idea that they had conceived of what the Messiah, what the prophet would be, and it didn't match what Jesus was. And so they said, no, 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 he's not. We're, we're still waiting. It's not him. It's not him. Some of them weren't really interested in who Jesus was when he came. They weren't interested in who he was. They were really just interested in what he could do for them. There's a story in Luke that talks about Jesus was walking along the border between a Jewish city and a Samaritan city, and he comes along 10 lepers. And these 10 lepers, they shout out because they were required to say, Lord, master, have mercy on us. And, and Jesus said to the whole group, Go and show yourself to the priest, which was the ritual. There was a procedure. If you had leprosy and all of a sudden you found yourself cleansed, which, oh, by the way, never happened. But there was a procedure for if that happened, you were to go and show yourself to the priest and say, look, I'm clean, so that you could be welcomed back into the community. Well, as they were walking away, they realized all of a sudden that they were clean. Do you notice that Jesus never touched them or came upon them or did anything other than to say, go and show yourself to the priest? Well, as these 10 lepers were going, one of them, one, turns around and comes back to Jesus to worship God and give glory to God. It is indicated in the text in that story that nine of them were Jews and one of them was a Samaritan. The one Samaritan turned around and came back to worship God through what Jesus had just done. And so those other nine, they weren't interested in who Jesus was. They were interested in what they could get from him. And once they had received it, they went on their way. 
Some people, I think, heard about Jesus, might have even believed that he was who he said he was, and they wanted to receive him, but they were afraid. They were afraid of what their friends would think. They were afraid of what might happen in their family. They were afraid of what might, maybe they would get in trouble with their job. Think about Nicodemus. He comes to mind when I think about this. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, highly respected obviously had sincere questions about Jesus because he came to him to ask him what this was all about. But he came to him at night because he was afraid of being associated with Jesus because he held a very high position and he knew that if he was associated with Jesus, he would likely lose that position. And I think that he wrestled with, I want to believe but I'm afraid of what might come if I do, what people might say about me, what might happen at my job if I am out front and connected to Jesus. And lastly, I think there was a group of people who maybe believed who he was. They'd seen all the miracles. They'd heard all the, the teachings, his, his, the authority that he spoke, which was his own. And rather than to say, this is the one that we have been told was coming, the, the Moshiach, the deliverer, the, the one who was going to free, give us uh, liberty, instead of saying that, they said, you know what? He's going he's gonna to take over our position. Like He's going to now be an authority instead of us, and I want to still be an authority. So what we need to do is we need to get rid of this guy. We need to kill him. And we see that among the Pharisees. Now, not all of them, but many of the Pharisees were so concerned about their power. It literally says, everyone will follow him and no one will follow us. That's what they said. They were more concerned that they would lose their authority. You know, as, as uh, I was thinking about this this, this week, I was just like furiously writing this down as it was coming to me in my office. At the end of it, I'm fairly sure I heard God say, here's the question, like, which of these are you? Which of these are you? Now, if you've been introduced to Jesus and if you've come here for even more than one time, you have been. So which are you? Did you get introduced to Jesus? Did you believe and did you receive Jesus as your deliverer? as your Messiah. I hope you did. But maybe you're one of the other groups. Maybe you're one of the groups that says, well, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, but that's not how I imagine God. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't imagine God as being this guy who came. I just, I just can't buy that. That's not the kind of God I have built up in my head. That's not what I imagined God to be. And I have all kinds of other ideas. And really, who's to say there's only one anyway? Can't God be everything? I mean, if God is all the time, all the place, can he be everything, anything to anyone? Well, the word doesn't support that, does it? Well, maybe you're the person that says, um, oh, I believe in God as long as I get whatever it is I pray for. But as soon as I don't get a yes answer to a prayer, I'm not so sure about this whole God-Jesus thing because he really didn't fulfill what I asked him to do. I can't get from him what I want, so I'm not sure I believe this whole thing. Well, maybe, maybe you are, uh, you really wanna believe. All of this sounds really good. You wanna embrace that, but you're afraid of what your family's gonna say. 
they're gonna be like, oh man, you went to a church that talked about Jesus and now you're like, it's like Jesus freak. You know, it's Bible this and Jesus that and God this and you're not, you're no fun anymore. You know, can Christians be fun? Yes, they can. Did you see those beach pictures? You know what's great is you can go out with a bunch of Christians and have a great time and actually not have to sleep next to the toilet that night hugging it or waking up the next morning with a, you know, feeling like death warmed over. That's a funny saying, isn't it? Death warmed over. What does that even mean? I don't know. (laughs) It makes me think of leftovers, really. It makes me think of leftovers. Death warmed over. Maybe that's you, I mean, maybe you're like, well, what if I go to work and I'm like, oh no, I'm, you know what, I, I don't watch that show anymore because it's not really godly or the language is whatever and people are like, dude, you're weird now. You okay with being weird? I've lived with it for a long time. It's great. Maybe you want to be in charge of you. Maybe you're just not willing to give up the authority in your own life. You're like, I should be the captain of my own destiny. You know what, gang? You're not. That's the thing. Even if you think you are, even if you want to be, you're not. Either you've given your life over to God, and he's the captain of your destiny, or you're just out there with no rudder at all, and the wind and the current of the culture is blowing you this way and that way, and you're rudderless. You're not the captain of your own destiny, but maybe you're like, you know what, I, I like Jesus. I think he had some good things to say. I think he was a good man. Jesus was a good, you know, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a good man and a great teacher, but he was God, and he said so. So if you think that he was just a good man and a good teacher, but not God, then you're saying that he was also a liar or insane. You're prepared to sit with that? Maybe you are. I, know. I actually had a friend that I used to live next door to, and we had this very conversation. And he said, I think, he, I think Jesus was a good guy, and I think he was a great teacher, but I don't believe he was God. And I said, well, he said he was. So he's either a liar or a lunatic, Which one? And he said, well, I guess he was a liar then because he was so against the idea of Jesus being who he said he was, of Jesus being God. Or maybe you're just so desperately clinging to the idea that I'm in authority over me, at least. I mean, everybody else is in authority over me in every other place in my life. I'm in authority over me, and if I give that up, what do I have left? And I would say that's the best place to be is to turn it over to Jesus. Just turn it over to Jesus. Over and over and over and over again, we see God tell them in Deuteronomy, do these things, follow these instructions, keep my commandments. Why? Because God's an egomaniac? No. So that it will be well with you. So it will be well with you. God knows what is good for you. You don't know what's good for you. I, I, I can't even eat right, apparently. <laughs> Every time I turn around, somebody else is telling me, nope, not all vegetables, nope, all meat, no bread, lots of bread, bacon. I'm happy about that one. 
I didn't, I, sorry, I don't know how I got off on that. I'm just... <laughs> God says that I'm sending a mediator to you, uh, a prophet, one, one that will stand between me, a holy God, not me, but you know, God, a holy God, and you. That's what it says right here. You asked me for that, or else your, your parents asked me for a mediator between, between God and man. And I sent you Moses, but there's one coming, Moses says, like me, in that sense that he will be a mediator, but he will be so much greater. And God says, I'm going to send a mediator who's going to stand in between a perfect and holy God and imperfect, unholy man. And without him, it is going to be required of you. Do you see what that says right there in verse 19 of chapter 18? He says, if you don't listen to this one that's coming, it will be required of you. And that means that you no longer have the one to stand in between you and God. It's that you're standing between, there's no one standing there. It's you and God, and you're facing God alone without the the holy mediator of Jesus Christ, and it will be required of you. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you. Maybe you're just like, I'm cool with that. I can plead my own case in front of God. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty smart. I think I can stand before, and I'm pretty good too. I'm pretty good, and I'm pretty smart. I think I'd be good standing in front of God. I really don't need Jesus. I'll stand in front of God. I'm gonna read something. Maybe you've read this story before. There's a guy, Job. And I'm not going to go into all of it, but if you've ever read the Bible or ever uh, read through the book of Job, you know that you know, Job uh, was a man that God considered a pretty decent guy, a God-fearing guy, and he allowed the devil to come in and, and, and tweak Job a little bit uh, because God had all confidence in Job, all confidence in Job. But Job, throughout this process of being you know, uh, burdened, not just by Satan, but by his really loving friends who came and said, Oh, Job, we see that you're in this horrible state and you're suffering. You've got sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Let me tell you where you're wrong and bad. And now, granted, they did come and sit with him for seven days, which is what they were supposed to do, and just sit and be like, but I think it was seven days of, let me think what I'm really going to say to really get in there, Job. Job, even though he, he kind of stands firm in his relationship with God, he does waver a little bit. In, in, uh, in what he believes. So much so that God actually comes to Job directly in verse 38, chapter 38, 39, and 40. I highlighted a few of these things, so I just want to read these to you. This is when the Lord comes to Job out of the whirlwind and says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. That's God talking directly to the man, Job. And when, if you're there and you hear God say, all right, who here thinks they're good enough, smart enough to talk directly to me? I'm going to speak and you're going to answer. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? <laughs> oh, man. All, like, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? to where its foundation is fastened. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? By the way, the answer is no, you haven't. And caused its dawn to know its place. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of the depths been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? He goes on and on. The indication is, I'm God. 
You're not. I don't mean to talk to you directly, Denise, but it's just over here. <laughs> but by the way, you're not God. In chapter 40, he says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty God correct him? Who, he who rebukes God, let him answer it. So after all of this, all of this correction, Job, God says to Job, All right, you've heard all I have to say. Now you speak. This is what it says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I frankly am very happy to have Jesus as my mediator between me and a perfect and holy God. But if you don't have Jesus, you're standing here in this place where it's being required of you to answer questions that you don't have answers to. So when he says, I'm sending you a prophet, a Messiah, a Mashiach, a deliverer, a liberator, you need to, what 15 says, hear and obey. Amen? All right, let's get started. <laughs> the timer's on, don't worry, I see it. It's Verse 20, actually, of 18, I circled it for some reason. There's probably a reason to it, but it says the prophet who, okay, so then he goes on. So you have to understand that God says, I'm going to send a prophet, and, and the prophet is going to have all kinds of knowledge and authority and position. So you can imagine that there were some along the way who were like, hey, wait a minute, there's going to be a lot of respect and authority given to this prophet. I think I'm going to be that prophet. And it says, but the prophet who presumes to speak in my word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And so he's warning them and saying, look, there may be some who come along who claim to be this prophet that I'm saying is going to come. And we know there were many who came. And he was saying, if a false prophet comes to you, one who claims to speak for me and doesn't, or one who says, oh, I've heard from God, not that God but another God, and he's saying this and this and this, he's saying that there's a penalty and it's dire for that prophet, is that he, he shall be killed. So then they say, and it makes sense, and if you hear in your heart, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So if, if they're saying like, well, how do we know that this prophet isn't speaking? For what the Lord says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. And that word presumptuously, it means in arrogance. So if that prophet comes and says, oh, I've heard from God and he's told me this and this and this, and you see that none of it happens, he says he's just identified himself as someone who's speaking arrogantly, not from God. And it says, here it says, you shall not be afraid. It means you don't heed that prophet. Now, now, 19, when the Lord, your God, has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate 
three cities for yourselves in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. Now, we talked about this before when they were uh, uh, earlier in Deuteronomy. He's talking about what's called a sanctuary city. Now, on the one side of the Jordan River where they are, they were already established three sanctuary cities. And he's saying, when you go in now, you're going to establish three more sanctuary cities. The reason they had these, uh, and he's going to explain it a little bit himself, and so I won't give any examples, I'll just use God's example, but if someone was to kill somebody by accident, unintentional, there was a place that they could run to to be um, uh, safe from being killed by a, the family member of the one who was killed. It was a, a sanctuary city. Now, here's the really neat thing I, uh, that I learned is that all of the sanctuary cities were one day's run from any of the other cities, which meant if something happened and you accidentally killed somebody, you had a place that you could go to, but you had to run to get there. If you wanted to get there in one day, you had to make haste. You could not lollygag. You can be like, oops, I killed that guy. Going to the sanctuary city, you had to go because what would happen is the avenger of blood, the Bible calls it, is the family member of the one that you killed was within their rights to chase you down and kill you if you were not in the sanctuary city. And so if that happened, you had to run to a sanctuary city. And there were, or there will be, as soon as they establish them, six sanctuary cities, six ways that within the power of man, they could be saved from the avenger of blood. Now, <laughs> Tanil's already smiling because she knows what I'm going to say. I'm not a numbers guy, but I can't help but notice that there are six cities set up by men to protect men from being killed by other men if there was an intentional manslaughter that happens. And so I look at this and I say, oh, that's kind of, that's man's number, six, man's way of protecting themselves against being killed by each other, right? It was a good thing. They would get to the city, and uh, as long as they were within the parameters, the boundaries of the city, the wall of the city, they could not be harmed in any way by the avenger of blood, which was the relative of the one who was killed. Um, what would happen is that that avenger of blood would come to the, with the man who um, was the one who unintentionally killed somebody. They would go to the high priest and they would hear the facts of the case. And if it was truly unintentional, then that man would be spared. His life could not be taken as long as he stayed within the boundaries of the city and he had to stay there for as long as the high priest was alive. When the high priest died, then he could go. That's what this is talking about. Now, what's really neat is, is when I look at this and I see, okay, there were six cities, three here and three there, and, you, and they could run to them to be saved um, from the avenger of blood. I immediately think, well, there's a seventh city. And that seventh city is God's seventh city or Jesus Christ, who is the one that we run to to be saved. Now, here's the really cool part is they could only be saved in a sanctuary city from an unintentional sin that they had committed. Thankfully for us, Jesus saves us from our unintentional sins, but also from our intentional sins. And there is no length of time 
See, Jesus is our great high priest, but he lives forever, always now to be our sanctuary city. There is no time limit on that. And it's amazing. He's the seventh city, God's perfect sanctuary city. Isn't that cool? I'm starting to be a numbers person a little bit. I am starting to enjoy that. But so, but here's the question. How did they know when they got to that city that their life would be spared? How did they know they'd be saved? How did they know that the Avenger blood wouldn't just show up and kill them anyway? How did they know that? I will tell you, because it was written right here. It was written in the word of God that says, this is the way that God wants it, so this is the way it should be. They believed it, and it was so. Because it was written there, they said, it's written in God's word, I believe it to be true, and their life was spared. See, it's the same thing with us in the seventh sanctuary city. The Bible says that if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you repent of your sin and ask him to forgive you, he does, and he saves you. The Bible says it, so I believe it. My salvation and my hope in eternal life is secure because it says so in the Bible, and I believe it. They knew that they could go to a sanctuary city and be saved. No avenger of blood was going to come and break the, the law of God in that sense and kill this person. As long as they stayed within the parameters of the city and the high priest was alive, they were safe. The Bible says it. I believe it. Can you say the same? Do you think the same? Do you believe that? If the Bible says it, do you believe it to be true? The Bible says, don't worry about tomorrow. But are you? I heard somebody yesterday say, I forget which, which guy it was, but he was like, past is past. Can't do anything about that. Future's unknown. God says you can't know the future. It's unknown to you. You can't, you can't know that. What we have is what's right in front of us today, the present, and it's a gift from God. That's why we call it the present. So when the Bible says, you know what, don't worry about tomorrow, God says, I got it, I got it. Are you like, okay? Are you like, I know, but God, what about my mortgage? What about my non-believing children? What about my, what about this? What about that? What about this? Really, I mean, God, can I worry about this? And God says, you can worry about it, you shouldn't. Do you believe what the word says? It's not just worry, it's not just anxiety. It's all these things that the Bible says that we're like, well, I read that, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> Sorry, I keep looking at you guys. It's, uh... <laughs> so he says uh, in verse five, look at it. Uh, as when a man, he gives an example. As when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the ax to cut down the tree and the head slips off the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of the sanctuary cities. You see that? So that's the example. If you're cutting wood and the ax head slips off and it kills the guy that you're with, um, that would be an example of you not killing somebody on purpose, okay? He's gonna go on and say, 
though when they look into your life, when they, when they diligently search and they find out that you actually hated this guy and you argued all the time um, and oops, the ax slipped out of my hand, they're gonna look into that. That's the thing, they're gonna diligently search. They're not gonna just say, oh, just because he came and said that was a complete accident, they're gonna look in. But it also means that no one could come and say, he hated this guy and they were always fighting. They're going to diligently search. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the idea of making these jump, uh, jumping to conclusions without having any, uh, any um, information. You know, and I gave a couple examples, but, but as I've been thinking about this and thinking about this, I think, man, I do this way more often than I realized. When somebody... Um, drives past me on the road and they do this kind of thing and they're going by quick, I immediately say, get off your phone. I don't know that they're on their phone. I've just assumed that they are and made that judgment call. You know what? Maybe his wife is having a baby in the backseat and he's doing this, trying to keep that baby in while they drive to the hospital. How come I don't jump to that conclusion? No, I assume that it's an idiot on their phone nearly running into me because they're not paying attention, right? I know I can't be the only one that does this. I mean, I, I mean the examples last week were kind of, were bigger, but there are so many times that we make judgment calls without having any information at all, other than like, this guy almost cut me off. He's obviously a bad driver. It may be that you may be 100% right, but maybe you're not. And I'm wondering like, can we just give them the benefit of the doubt? And wouldn't I be happier anyway? Maybe I should say, you know what, I'm gonna pray for that guy and that baby. (laughs) (laughs) He says, therefore I command you saying, you shall separate these three cities for yourself. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, this is verse eight, as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. And if, if that actually happened, that would really blow my example of six cities being you know, the cities of man in one city. Guess what happened? They never added three more cities. You know why? because they never actually took the entire amount of land. They never went in and completely dispossessed. Now, there are places in the Bible that says, well, they went in and they took the land and they possessed it. Um, But there was a part of that that God said, you need to dispossess all of these other people who I'm sending you in there to dispossess because this land isn't just for you. I'm also using you as a tool to do something in those uh, people's lives also. And so they never actually went in and took all of the land. God was giving them 300,000 square miles. They never took all of it. They never went in and dispossessed all the people and took all the land. And so additional cities were never necessary. And every time I think that and every time I read that, I wonder, man, what a blessing it would have been for them. Actually, the closest they ever got was under the reign of King Solomon many, many, many years later they got kind of close to the amount of land that God was giving to them or had promised to them. But I always think, man, what a blessing that they've missed out on by not going and and taking everything that God was like, here, here, I'm doing it. How many times have we read in Deuteronomy, the land that the Lord your God is giving you, the land that the Lord your God is giving you, this incredible blessing that he is handing over to you. And you're like, oh, thank you for this amazing blessing, Lord. I'll take this much. 
I don't you do that. I do that. I do that, I'm sorry to say. I was like, the Lord has got some amazing blessing. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I could be content with a, a sliver of it. And God is like, okay, I'll give you a sliver, but... Why? Maybe I'm afraid. Maybe the enemy gets in my head and says, you don't deserve that. What makes you think you deserve it? Well, he's right in that. I don't deserve it, but God has it for me. I need only to say, okay. God, he says to them, wherever the sole of your foot touches will be yours. You would think that they'd be like, come on, everybody, let's go. Stamping out their land and walking the borders and being like, God's given all of this to us. The thing is, like, like, there were still obstacles, weren't there? There were still people in the land. There were still high fortified cities and armies of mighty men of valor and things in their way that God was like, I'm giving you all this, but there's some work to do here. Let's go, you and me, together. I'll do it. In fact, Look at this. Just flip over for a second to Deuteronomy chapter 20. <laughs> and it is where? When you go into battle against your enemies, verse 1 of chapter 20, and, and, they, and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you. Yep, that'd be scary. That'd be scary to be like, oh, well, we've got swords. And they're like, well, we have chariots and horses and more swords. Do not be afraid of them, for your Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, he is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Oh, man. Can you embrace that truth today? Can you embrace that truth that God says, I go with you, I fight for you, so I will save you. So when you're looking out and you're like, oh, man, there's chariots and there's more guys than I've had and, and there's an obstacle that's bigger than I can handle and God says, yeah, but I'm with you, I'm going to fight for you, I will save you. Can you embrace that truth? Yeah, can you? No? No, yes. <clears throat> and if you keep all these commandments, verse 9, and do them which I command you today, oh, we've got the verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. He's basically saying, I do not want the shedding of innocent blood. I'm providing a way to prevent that from happening. That's why he gives them these sanctuary cities. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring him out from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. For your, for your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. And so he says, the sanctuary city is set up for those who are innocent of intentional murder, 
so that innocent blood isn't shed. But if someone is not innocent, if someone intentionally killed somebody, then it is uh, a capital offense on them, and the elders of the city can bring them out, even if they fled to a sanctuary city, um, and that person is then executed. That's what they're talking about. Now, you, verse 14, you shall not, he goes on, he changes the subject. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance which you will inherit in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, for us, when we read the Bible, especially as we're reading this part, we're just like, okay, don't move landmarks. You understand, none of this has happened yet. They haven't actually even gone into the land. And so it seems like if you were one of those Israelites and you're, and you're like, you've got your backpack on and you're ready to go in and it's been like 16 days of Moses talking to you about this and you're like, all right, when we get in there, don't move borders. What is, what, I mean, why are we talking about this right now? And it strikes me that this is just one of those moments where God reminds us that he is outside of time. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows what has happened. He knows what will happen. He knows what's happening. And to God, he's saying, when you go in, now in the land, don't move any borders that have been set up. I'm going to give you inheritances. This land is for you. This land is for you. This land is for you. Don't move the borders. And I'm sure at some point they're like, well, okay, <laughs> we won't move the borders. But this is what we learn. Guess what they did once they got in there? They started moving borders. It was, it was so prominent. It's mentioned like twice in Proverbs that they would go out. And you're, you're, the idea is that they would have these landmarks, these piles of stones that would mark like borders of their land. And they would go out and they would be like, and they would move it like three feet closer to your house and expand my territory. And then the next morning they would come out and the guy would be like, what? Why does my field seem so much smaller today? And you'd be like, mm -hmm, that's so weird. But that's what was going on is that in order to benefit themselves, they, were, they would move the landmarks of the property next to them so they're to increase their own property. And you know, and if you do it a little bit, so I have this, she's not here today, so I can tell you this story. <laughs> I have this partner that I work with and um, for several weeks, we had some auction items stored in our office and, one, and they were these two big electric bicycles. They were really cool, um, but they were in ours and they were over by her desk. So I was messing with her. So every time she left the room, I would go in and I would inch it a little bit closer to her desk. And then I would go back to work and she'd come in. And I'd be like, so after a few days, she was like, why are these bikes so close to my desk? And I'd be like, I don't know. That's so weird. So I was increasing my own office space and decreasing hers by moving those bikes closer and closer to her desk. But that's the idea is they were moving the border lines and increasing their own borders, shrinking the borders. And God has said, don't do it. But that's what they were, they were doing that thing. And God knew it. He knew that would happen hundreds of years before. Actually, he knew it at the creation of the world. God knew that at some point they were going to be cheating each other by moving the borders of the property. It was a problem. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. And so uh, something important to take away from that, number one, is understand that God is outside of time. God does not operate on our timetable. Um, he doesn't operate on a, t a linear timeline. We, we live on a linear timeline, right? We're born, you go on some diets, and then you die. And that's basically how it works. God is outside of time. Here's time and here's God. He holds time in his hand. 
And so he's able to know everything from the beginning to the end. He already knows the sins you're going to do. And he's already forgiven those, it says. But we come to him in repentance because we don't want that relationship hindered by anything that's in between us. But because he's outside of time, he's seen it all. He already knows the disgraceful things I'm going to do. That makes me want to cry, actually. He already knows those things that I'm going to do, that I'm like, Lord, give me strength to overcome this. And he says, there is no temptation that you will face that I have not given you the power to overcome. Do you believe that? Can you embrace that truth? Because that will help you. It will help you. The Bible says in James, it says, when you're tempted, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So where does the power come from? Not in my ability to resist, but because I'm submitted to God. And God says, I will help you submit yourself to God. But I've talked about this in the past. I sometimes don't want to pray that because I understand the power behind that prayer. And there's a part of my flesh that says, but I really want to do that thing. And if you pray that, you're going to overcome the temptation to do it. That's a shameful thing that I do. My mind is devious when it comes to figuring out ways to sin. You still want me as your pastor? Because... I know that when I say, Lord, I submit to you and I resist the devil and I say, devil, you have to flee because the word of God says it and I believe it. Amen? I heard a, a pastor this week as I was listening to these scriptures being taught, he said that he was reminded, and I think there's something so powerful here, that even though we're not going to our neighbor and picking up their fence and scooching it over and putting it back down, we still move borders when it comes to God's word. We move borders. When God's word says, don't lie, and we said, well, sometimes it's necessary, or it's not really a lie, it's kind of a half-truth, whole lie. We've moved a border. We've moved a boundary line. When we say, oh, you know, I believe that Jesus is God and the, the whole Trinity and all that stuff, but I don't want to say that everybody has to believe that. I mean, God could be whatever they think it needs to be or whatever they believe it is. You've moved a border. When we say, you know... I don't want to tell anybody that they have to be a boy or they have to be a girl. It's really, I guess it's whatever they feel like. Guess what? We've moved a border. That's a huge one. Because God says in Genesis 1, 24, I think, he says that God created man. And that means humanity. And it says, and he created the male and female. That means God knew who was male and who was female. So when we say, you know what? I know I was born a male, but I'm a female. What you're actually saying is, God made a mistake. I know better. I'm God. That's a huge boundary that you've just moved. And God says, do not move my boundaries in the word. Don't move them. And you say, um, don't covet what your neighbor has. And you say, I'm not really coveting. I'm just keeping up with the Joneses. Do we have any Joneses? <laughs> I don't think we have any Joneses. That's so weird. We have Smiths. 
If you say, I'm just, you know, I'm just keeping up with the Joneses, you're inching a border away. You're moving a border. God says, these borders were set up a long time ago. Don't move the borders. Live within the borders that he has set up. They're right here. You want to know what the borders are? Get into the words. Spend some time. Like, well, how am I supposed to know what borders there are? He gave them to us already throughout the entire word. It's not just the Ten Commandments, although those are great. But he says there's a lot of things. We're supposed to put off. You know what it says in Ephesians? It says don't use uh, foolish language or coarse jesting. That means don't curse and don't tell dirty jokes. Actually, the word in Hebrew means innuendo. You know what innuendo is? It's like, it's like when you uh, say a word that's not really the thing, but it means that like dirty thing, that filthy thing. That's innuendo. And the Bible says, don't do that. Don't do it. Not just don't do it, don't listen to it. Don't be involved in it. But when you're like, you're all sitting around and someone's telling dirty jokes, you're like, ha, 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 ha. you're moving a border. It's a border that you're allowing to be moved. And the Bible says, don't do that. Coarse jesting, dirty jokes. Here's the thing. God, the conviction on me is so strong on this. I, I, when I sit down to watch TV and I see that I've heard this show is really great and I start watching it and the first 10 minutes, they're just cursing all over. I need to turn that off. I need to turn that off because it's poisoning me. It's poisoning me. We say, well, I'm just becoming desensitive, but it's like you're becoming a callous piece of skin that nothing can penetrate, including the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's so much junk out there that is so subtle that the enemy is coming up and saying, oh, this isn't bad. This is popular. People like it. It's entertaining, but you can't stand. It should be causing your skin to crawl to hear foul language in a show and you're like it's just but it, it makes it real it just makes it more real did you ever hear that did you ever say that i don't watch tv so it's real i can look out my window for real i want to watch little house on the prairie <laughs> no cursing in little house on the prairie You know, that's my own conviction. You know, I, I think it extends to y'all, but you have to make your own decisions on that. I think when he says, don't be involved in coarse jesting and filthy language and things like that, it includes that. I think it includes that. But you all decide for yourself. Let the Holy Spirit convict you on that as well. Verse 15 says, one witness shall not rise against the man concerning any iniquity or any sign that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who serve in those days, and the judge shall make careful inquiry. Indeed, if the witness is a false witness, who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. And basically he's saying is if you lie in court against your brother and it's found that you lied on purpose, then you're guilty of whatever sentence would have been carried out on the one that you're accusing. So if it was a five-year prison term and you lied and that person is found that you lied, you go to prison for five years. If it's a murder trial, and you're lying to get con someone convicted of murder, and it's found that you lied, guess what? You're executed. It was supposed to be a deterrent. Do you know that we still have a, a version of this now? Like lying in court, giving an intentional false witness in court. It's called perjury. 
you didn't know what it was, that's what it is. Perjury means you go into court and you lie on purpose to try and uh, change the outcome of the case. And actually, in, in this country, and even in this state, perjury comes with a five-year prison term, five years of probation, and a $5,000 uh, fine. I guess they just wanted to make that easy to remember, just all fives. Sadly, perjury is also called the forgotten offense because it is rarely persecuted, prosecuted, rarely prosecuted. So, so what is keeping anyone from lying in court, bearing false witness anymore? It used to be you would go into court, you'd get up on the witness stand, they say, place your hand on the Bible, put your hand up in the air, maybe it was this way, right hand on the Bible, and then you would say, I swear on this Bible, the things that I'm about to say are true. Not just the truth, the whole truth, right? Because a half truth, still a lie. The whole truth. Now do you know what we do? You just raise your hand. No Bible. No Bible anymore. What they say is, come on in um, and, and put up your hand and just promise to tell the truth. Well, if you're already thinking you're going to lie, all right. I swear on nothing. Me. The ceiling. Whatever it is. We, we've lost that. There's nothing that people are swearing on that has any power, any authority at all. And there's no... There's no repercussions if someone is found to be lied. I mean, it's stated in the law, but it's not prosecuted in the law. So we've lost that. See, they were here, here in, the, in the word. It said, if you lie and it's found that you're a liar, then the sentence is passed on to you. That was a deterrent for them. It's supposed to be a deterrent now, only we don't seem to care whether people lie or not. You want to know why our justice system is so messed up? Because it's not based on anything anymore. There's no standard of truth anymore. The thing is, look at here, it says that they would bring it before what? In verse 17, look at it. They, the men in, in, in the country stand before the Lord first. He's listed first. The Lord God has to be in that mix. Then the priests and then the judges. Right now, what do we got? Just judges. And not just judges, only judges. That's what I mean. We've said, nope, not God. We're not going to stand before God. We're not going to stand before the high priest that represents or ministers to between man and God. We're just going to stand before the judge. And now the judge has the authority, but he's not putting his hand on the Bible either. And he says, and those, um, then you shall do to him. It says, and then verse 20, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and they, hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. That's that's the idea of, um, it's a deterrent. And then lastly, it says in 21, you shall, you, your eyes shall not pity life, not pity, excuse me, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now later on, Jesus will say, you've heard it said in days of old, an eye for an eye, a foot for a foot hand for hand, or however he says it. But he says, and Jesus says, but I tell you, if someone hits your face, you turn and give him the other cheek. If someone compels you to walk a mile, walk two. Pray for those who hurt you and persecute you, right? And so you would, some people look at that and say, 
well, that's a, you know, Jesus is contradicting the word of God right here and he's throwing it out. But see, here's the thing. It wasn't that he was contradicting the word. He was saying that, um, I have to read it. He condemns it. He condemns its use as an obligation, right? They had started to teach by Jesus' time the obligation of if someone does something to you, then you have to do something back. That's what the rabbis were teaching, that eye for eye was an obligation. But really it was set up to protect them from the idea of revenge. You hit me with your hand, I'm gonna hit you with a club. You hit me with a club, I'm coming at you with a spear. This idea of revenge rather than justice. So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, was a safeguard against revenge. Rather, it was to protect justice. Jesus says, I'm not saying that's not true, but when it comes to personal relationships, I want you to practice brotherhood, not revenge. For personal relationships, he proposed the ideal of brotherhood and an examination of the condition of your heart. Amen? Amen. Well, I've talked long enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I just thank you so much for this word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that you did send a prophet, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Savior, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to offer us hope for eternal life, to forgiveness, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much. If, if there's anybody here, Lord, I, that doesn't know you personally, Lord, I pray that right now, Lord, right now, that you would be convicting them heavy to say, you need this. You don't know me. I don't know you in that way. Lord, that they might call out on Jesus and say, forgive me of my sins, Lord. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit today. Forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm a sinner. Lord, I pray that if anybody is embracing that relationship with Jesus Christ today, Lord, if anybody is praying, Lord, forgive me of my sins, that they would come and tell somebody, come and tell me, come and tell somebody, you know what, I prayed that prayer today. I think I, I, think I asked Jesus to come into my life. I think I'm born again. That's true, that there's a, an amazing celebration going on in heaven, and we want to celebrate also with you. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead that person to someone, tell, tell someone. Lord, I thank you, and as we go out today, I know there was a lot of conviction in the message today, this morning. Lord, I thank you for it. I didn't even plan on that, Lord. But thank you for speaking into my heart, Lord. I pray that we would all go out of here today changed than, than how we came in. Thank you, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Thank you.